Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Thank you very much. So, <clears throat> welcome everybody to the, uh, the second meeting of Controversies in Church History uh, for 2018. And tonight's topic of my talk is the trial and condemnation of Galileo Galilei. And entitled it, subtitled it, Scientific Revolution in the Catholic Church in the 17th Century. So what I talk about tonight is uh, <clears throat> the background for this, what was at stake, and uh, give you guys a little bit of apologetic material. If you go out to the world, you probably hear this a lot. I hear a lot, from, well, actually a lot, but I've heard it from colleagues from time to time. Uh, I admit I have held my tongue from time to time as I didn't think I'd respond in, uh, in, uh, in a charitable way. Uh, but definitely some good background on what happened with uh, Galileo and his, uh, what's called the Galileo Affair. One thing before I get started, uh, I don't know if you guys are on Facebook, I forget to mention this every time I do this, but since you're just, just you guys here tonight, um, I will actually be posting uh, after the, uh, the lecture next couple days a video and then a link uh, to a Google Doc which has my slides, has a list of sources for further reading, stuff like that. So that's, I did that for every one of the lectures. They should be up there somewhere. I need to get a, a website for this at some point, but uh, I'll make that stuff available to you uh, in the next few days. So with that, let's, uh, let's get started, uh, shall we? Uh, there you go. And just as an introduction to this, um, one of the big reasons to do a... Uh, where's my... Okay. To do um, a uh, lecture on Galileo, of course, is because it, it's kind of a famous. I'm assuming you guys have heard about the story before, vaguely. Galileo was condemned, all that stuff. Uh, if you don't know Galileo, Galilei, of course, was a famous astronomer, one of the founders of, the, of modern science. Was called twice before the Roman Inquisition in 1616 and then 1632. The first time he was let go of a warning, the second time uh, he was um, condemned. Uh, literally, his teaching was condemned. Uh, he was placed under house arrest, and he was forced to abjure his teachings, to recant them uh, in front of the Roman Inquisition. And this, of course, involved, if you don't know, <coughs> the Copernican versus Ptolemaic um, solar system, views of the solar system. The Copernican, we'll get into Nicholas Copernicus in a minute. Um, the sun-centered, the heliocentric system, the idea of the sun moves around, uh, we move around the sun, the planets move around the sun in the solar system. And the Ptolemaic, which was the older one, the regnant uh, idea at the time, where the Earth stands still and the planets and the sun roll around it. Um, Galileo was a, uh, an advocate, of course, of the Copernican, uh, and was condemned for that reason. And uh, this has been, of course, um, this has been, if you don't know, one of the big, it's become a myth, actually, um, uh, sort of centerpiece for people who want to um, denigrate the Catholic Church in particular, but religion, religion, in, particular, religion in general, um, as to its uh, supposed inherently conflictual tendencies towards science. Uh, so much so that John Paul II in 1982 had actually issued, there's a pontifical science commission that he actually commissioned to study this, uh, study the Galileo affair. Uh, he admitted an allocution to this, um, to this body that theologians at the time uh, bore some of the blame for uh, what happened. People, by the way, if you look at the internet for this, they'll say he apologized for Galilee. He actually said there's no apologizing in his actual text. Um, but he admits that theologians got some things wrong, which, of course, is partly because of the outcry, which this uh, 
this affair still kind of uh, elicits. Now, one of the things I want to give you tonight is an answer for people think, things people say about the Catholic Church, and one of the ones, I'll lay out some of the things people say, um, and come back to these at the end and give you some rebuttals of this. The first is the church persecuted Galileo for spreading knowledge. They were just afraid of new ideas, basically, uh, for apparently no reason. Uh, second, the church puts blind faith ahead of science. Um, the church is ignorant. It puts, you know, um, motion dealing people who, again, uh, new atheist types can see religion as nothing but sort of subjective feeling. This is the kind of objection you hear a lot. Thirdly, and this is probably more than anything else, it's opposed to social or scientific progress. Uh, we will identify scientific progress with progress itself. This is a big charge. And finally, um, it was merely concerned with its own power. The church didn't actually care. By the way, this is kind of contradictory when you think about it, but the church was just about power with Galileo. It just wanted to insert itself over him and squash dissent, something along those lines. Uh, we're going to come back to that. However, in my presentation, I'm going to have two very simple premises for this. Uh, I'm going to begin with two things, and I'm going to go hopefully prove these to you by the end of this. The first is that actually the Inquisition was right to condemn Galileo's teaching. Uh, well, I, by the way, no, I'm not a member of the Flat Earth Society, and yes, there is something called the Flat Earth Society. You should check out their Twitter feed, it's hilarious. Um, secondly, even more important than this, even more important than this, um, it was right to do so for scientific reasons. And by the way, what I'm giving here tonight, um, there's actually not really a lot of theology. This is actually stuff I'm getting from historians of science, which we'll come back to at the end if you want to ask more about that. So those are our premises. This is what I'm going to try to prove tonight for you, so let's get into this. So first I have to talk about the scientific revolution. Anybody here heard that term before? Maybe some of you have heard that term. Um, this refers, of course, to the changeover from ancient thought to more or less as our modern notions of the natural sciences, uh, the scientific method, those sorts of things. And uh, if you um, you live a life, if you if you surf the internet enough, you'll find a sort of basic underlying narrative to a lot of uh, to a lot of critiques of the church, or not just the church, but a, a sort of popular version of this story about how modern science comes about. And it kind of goes like this, basically. Um, before modern science in the Middle Ages, everybody was stupid. Everybody was a moron. They were all dumb. They were dumb because they were religious and ignorant. They were religious and ignorant because they were dumb. Some sort of this. Basically, religion's all to blame. People are stupid. Uh, and what happens is, one day, some people who are more evolved, you could call them, you know, I guess a, a bunch of uh, mutants, uh, somehow with big brains, discover, um, because they had magical powers, of course, they discover uh, things that these dumb medieval types never could, uh, but they're oppressed by these dumb people, for the majority. Uh, but eventually they fight a big war, they overcome them. That's in the fourth movie, by the way. Uh, or fourth, I can't remember, it lose track of them. And eventually they overcome the dumb people, and they build a utopia where everybody is happy, everybody's singing all the time, uh, and they have big mouse ears. Uh, except that apparently some of these non-mutant types are still around, and apparently they have the right to vote because uh, eventually they elected this guy, uh, and now it's the Dark Ages again. I hope you're not taking any of this too literally, but you get the idea. There is this very, very, very annoying idea about how modern science comes about. 
which is almost completely and utterly false. And I want to like, we're gonna take a while to get to Galileo is my point, so bear with me and uh, ignore the non-mutant terrorist leader. Um, the scientific revolution, what actually happens, um, first of all, is not some big event. And I, I hate that sort of, um, it's a dumb popular narrative, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Um, that science is a matter of great heroes who break it, you know, fight against the man and stuff like this. It's a long, drawn-out process. It involves changes in very basic beliefs about the natural world, but even nature itself as a concept, which I won't go into in too much detail. And it takes three or four centuries, from the 16th to the 19th centuries, really for it to be complete in our modern understanding of um, what um, science is now as compared to it was in Galileo's day. What happens is that older theories of nature, without the comma, are replaced by newer, I'm going to use this term mechanistic a lot, theories of nature. I'll come back to this, but the older theories are not mechanistic. They do not, by mechanistic, uh, ideas that treat nature as if it is a machine, basically. It is not organic, it is not something growing, it is something you can sort of fix like a machine or rearrange like a machine. And thirdly, um, the big change that kind of, to put this in uh, broad terms, is you have uh, a change from a, a holistic idea of science. I'll come to this in a moment. The idea of older theory, the older theory of nature that was uh, reigned in uh, Western Europe at the time of Galileo um, is about understanding the whole of nature itself, its first principles, its design, and not necessarily about mastering particular parts of it. What will happen, of course, in our modern understanding of it is that it is about the technical mastery of, of the natural world. And we'll explain that more in detail, but it's a humongous shift, to say the least. Uh, we'll come to this, we'll go through this again and explain that in more detail. But that's in outline my definition of the scientific revolution. So what uh, is this theory, the older theory, what is it based in? It's based in ancient philosophy, and it goes back to, there are several different variations of this, but uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle is the source for uh, so many things prior to the modern era. Uh, the basic, uh, the basic um, uh, outlines of his philosophy. And one of these things has to do with how we acquire knowledge. Uh, and for Aristotle as a philosopher, we acquire knowledge, begin with knowledge in the senses. You get sensory data from your, your sight, your hearing, your taste, your touch, your smell. But then your reason takes hold of this. And reasoning through a process, which I don't have to explain here, uh, a dialectic, you sift, if you like, the senses, um, and dis uh, discern the telos of natural objects, usually organic beings, we'll say that for the moment. Um, the telos means its purpose, the end for which it has been created, if you like. So for example, the telos, the purpose of a, uh, of a human being, in Aristotle's understanding, you are an animal, by the way, according to Aristotle, Everyone's, every living organic being is called an animal, uh, is to fulfill your rational purpose, to exercise your reason. That's what makes, that is the essence of humanity, that's what makes you what you are. But every living thing, insofar as it has a nature, has a telos. And so reason can look at the natural world and discern the purposes of it. This is a very competent understanding of the natural world, that you have the capacity as a rational being to do this. In effect, once you've done all this through this process, what this the expectation of his philosophy is that our the natural world, um, our ideas of the natural world will mirror its actual structure. That is to say, your mind, again, there's a confidence of this. Uh, you can gain a picture of what the world is actually like in and of itself. Back to that. 
Um, and this is a, a, a quote from the very beginning of his book on physics, which was the ancient physics textbook for so, so, so long. When the objects of an inquiry in any department uh, have principles, conditions, or elements, it is through acquaintance with these that knowledge, that is to say scientific knowledge, but that means a sort of ordered body of knowledge, rationally constructed with principles to it, is attained in the, uh, is attained, really, um, is, uh, scientific is attained in the S science of nature, I, should, I think I cut out part of the, uh, part of the, uh, the quotation, eh. anyway, uh, as in the branches of study, our first task will be to try to determine what relates to its first principles. What it should have said there is attaining knowledge of its first principles. Um, the basic uh, principles that explain everything in its details. What this means, by the way, and put that, um, that, that, that confusing quotation in a little more uh, perspective, um, the aim of this uh, idea of, of uh, how we study the natural world and know it is to reveal its whole structure, right? It's a deductive philosophy, uh, if you know what that means. You start from general principles, then you proceed to particular aspects of it. Um, and the goal, when I say aim to reveal the structure of it, the goal in some ways, and I'll come back to this a little bit, um, is to align yourself with nature, if you're talking about humanity's relationship with it. Uh, nature has a moral status. Um, nature, uh, the natural world is not some thing out there you do whatever you want to with. It's kind of in line with everything else in the universe. It's a pattern for living. Um, this ancient Stoics philosopher had a saying that it was good to live, quote unquote, according to nature. And the natural world, even though it's subordinate to man, is something that you learn to sort of, again, fit yourself into this um, universe of which you are a part, um, to participate in this. But nature is also purposive, like a human being has purposes, basically. Um, this does not, of course, encourage experimentation. Aristotle did some experimentation. There were medieval philosophers, with some exceptions, excuse me, medieval natural philosophers, who did experiments in things like hydraulics or optics. For the most part, they did not. Again, not, not the goal, by the way, to do specific experiments on particular things, to get particular knowledge that way. Their aim is not to gain knowledge that way, but knowledge of the whole. And so you don't need to have knowledge of the parts in themselves to have what they consider to be knowledge. Now, what happens in the 17th century is that people begin to really take a vastly different view of the natural world, how we understand it. And this is partly a matter of a shift in philosophy as much as the way people actually conduct what we think of as being science. Um, and one of the most important people for articulating what people wanted to do is the philosopher René Descartes, who, by the way, he did some science experiments. He wasn't really much of a scientist, but uh, he was a supporter of the newer theories of nature that appear in the 17th century. Now, if you don't know him, he's famous for a couple of things. One is he had a skeptical view um, about humanities, or at least for the purposes of his philosophy, uh, had a skeptical view about what the senses could tell us about the natural world. He begins with the idea that the senses aren't reliable in his uh, famous work, Discourse on Method, that we can't trust the senses. Well, if you can't trust the senses in a traditional framework, how do you get knowledge, basically? He comes up with a solution. You don't start with your sensory knowledge of the, if you like, external world, the objective world. Uh, you start with yourself. I can doubt everything. I can be skeptical about everything. The only thing I can't be skeptical about is that I'm actually here, giving this lecture, looking at several people in the room. Um, and this is his famous phrase, this is in Latin, it's cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. 
What that means is you don't start with knowledge of, you, can't, you don't presume you have knowledge of the objective world. You start with your own subjective perception, even if it's not sensory, basically. And you begin from that to, project, to construct a picture of what the world looks like. This, and this leads to what is sometimes called Cartesian dualism, meaning essentially, and this will get us in a moment, that you are essentially your mind. Because your body is something, by the way, because your senses, I mean, your senses can fool you, right? You can feel pain, right? Something causes you pain physically. And there, by the way, there are conditions, by the way. You have you know, a certain type of poison. You will experience hot as cold and cold as hot. Those things are malleable and imperfect. So you're essentially not, you're essentially not your body, right? You are your mind. There's an absolute separation between mind and body. And this is important because in this view of nature, uh, which is based on, again, this is the other thing, a method, the means of knowing is very different. It's not a deductive system. You don't start with first principles, you start with inductive observation of the natural world, right? Of particular things. Um, arranged through math, very, very precise mathematical measurement. One of the things Descartes, Galileo, everything from the 17th century who wants to reform the way science is done emphasizes mathematics above everything else, essentially. Uh, we'll come to that, why that's important in a moment. Um, um, and in, uh, in terms of, again, how you know things, the use of method, that is to say, not what you know, the content, right? And I didn't explain this uh, maybe fully. People, when they studied the natural world, they would study, they got this mostly from books in the Middle Ages, right? They were studying, as we'll get into a moment, Aristotle's works. Um, because why? Because again, you're not concerned with particular experiments, things of that nature. You're concerned with the grand principles. What this idea basically says is you don't have any knowledge of grand principles. That's all kind of uh, illusory. You have to start with particular and build your way up to supposedly some grand realization of the principles there. And the important thing is how you get there with the proper method, rather than presumption of what the first principles Finally, one of the things that happens with all this is that this leads to what uh, later philosophers will call the disenchantment of nature. Because as you can kind of tell from all this, this means all of a sudden that the natural world, matter, is no longer something you can presume has moral purpose. It's just stuff. It's something you happen to bump into. It is something that uh, no longer you can read and presume because of the skepticism that someone like Descartes uh, begins doing. Um, that it had purpose it was open to. Um, that's what they mean by disenchantment when they use that term. It means nature no longer is this world designed for man's purposes that we fit into it naturally. No, it's something you can kind of reconstruct. Uh, and this is a quotation from modern philosopher, which gives you an idea of what's different about this from, say, what Aristotle wants to do. This is Bertrand Russell, by the way, who was a, an atheist, among other things. Uh, he says, quote, physics is mathematical, not because we know so much about the physical world, but because we know so little. <clears throat> it is only its mathematical properties that we can discover. The rest are knowledge is negative. And what he means by that is, the only things you can know for certain, and this is something Galileo, Descartes, and everyone else says, are what they call primary qualities. And what I mean by primary qualities? Duration, number, volume, anything you can measure mathematically. Anything else is merely secondary. You can't have certain knowledge in a certain way. What this does is reduce uh, very, very 
much the scope of what you know, natural philosophy, as they called it, and that they what we call natural sciences, can actually know. But, this is the trade-off, um, the idea because of the measurement, I can't stress how big of a change this is, nobody made precise measurements uh, in a consistent, rigorous way, I mean, about anything before the 17th century. Um, that precise precision of measurement can give you greater control over those particular, that narrowed, narrow aspects of nature that you now, now is the proper focus of, of, uh, of science, basically. Greater control over the natural world. And you get um, some of the propagandists for this new idea. One of the most famous is Sir Francis Bacon, the uh, English philosopher. Uh, he never actually said this, by the way, knowledge is power, but the sentiment is in his works. The idea is your goal is not to, again, understand the grand structure of nature, fit yourself into it, right? You know, be at peace with the world, whatever you want to say, harmony with nature. Our goal is to give you power over it so that you can use the natural world uh, as a means of uh, remedying man's condition, right? They're thinking, by the way, this isn't as sinister as it sounds and making it sound kind of sinister. Um, environmentalist types tend to take a sinister view of Bacon and also René Descartes, uh, who says in his famous work, Discourse on Method, that if they followed his method for rigorously you know, investigating the natural world, men could become, quote unquote, the masters and possessors of nature. And by the way, especially Descartes is thinking of medicine. You can break your arm and die in the 17th century very easily. They want that type of knowledge, which they haven't been have that much. But its aim is technical mastery of the physical world, not, if you like, a sort of philosophical understanding of it. So, this represents, among other things, a very, very narrow view of the natural world. It presumes, uh, for the sake of uh, doing experimentation, for gaining that technical mastery, we can only know a very tiny part of what nature is, contrasted with the older view of it. Secondly, um, it views coming to this knowledge as a matter of technical expertise, of making rigorous observations and then um, sifting them through mat mathematical expertise. As you're going to see here in a moment, a lot of the early astronomers were trained uh, not as astronomers but as mathematicians, Galileo, of course, prominent among them, as opposed to this, what I'm calling a holistic understanding of nature uh, that preceded uh, them in Aristotle's works above all. Um, your goal is not to know the whole of nature, it's just to use those parts of it that are of value to you. And finally, the last thing, this whole process only begins in Galileo's time. It is not clear, as I'll make it clear in a moment, why, first of all, to these people, why, of course, the Aristotelian, the older framework, isn't quite working in the sense that it can't make sense of new discoveries, and we'll get to those in a second. Uh, lots of people want to defend it because it had basically done what they wanted to do for so, so long. Um, and that's the key one key to the background. The next question becomes, okay, why do they want to make this change uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries? So this comes to, and this is brief historical background, because I, I don't have as much time to go well on this. I am I doing on time, by the way? Uh, I'm doing very well. So in his lifetime, there was a crisis in Western Europe due to several things. One of which, one of the big things that's going on, which in my last lecture especially, uh, is the Protestant Reformation. It has bitterly, bitterly divided Western Europe into, uh, if you like, warring camps, um, Protestant and Catholic. And um, 
pushed forward a process historians call confessionalization, and I have to stress this because what that term means is that Protestant confessions of faith become to define certain countries in Germany, in Scandinavia, places like that. Uh, Catholic uh, confessions of faith begin to define countries like, there's no Italy at that point, but Spain, um, other countries. Why is that important? Because while we would say confessionalization, um, these uh, territories now, because this is such a big division, make much more strenuous efforts than they ever have to reach the entire population, to instruct everybody very clearly on what their confessional principles are. What this means is, of course, what had been a source of unity in Western Europe now becomes a bitter source of division, where some of the most basic questions of, of course, human life, you know, salvation, all those things, there are now clear-cut different answers to the same question. Uh, and this splits uh, Europe in half. And by the way, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, which I haven't talked about, didn't know about last time, um, um, uh, is part of this process where the church refines what it uh, believes. It makes it very starkly clear, very starkly different uh, from what Protestants believe. And it divides roughly North and South, Southern Europe, Spain, uh, the Italian city-states, uh, some parts of Southern Germany, uh, and you know, Britain, not Ireland, um, you know, Scotland, England, um, Prussia, a few other places in uh, Northern Europe, they go Protestant. So you have a situation in which religion is now uh, a matter of contestation, right? Um, you also have uh, big changes in the wider world uh, causing uh, distress. You have the creation of world empires, <clears throat> Spain and Portugal, of course, the two major discovery nations, if you like, who discover uh, the Portuguese um, trying to get around uh, the coast of Africa. Um, they're the first great explorers. Spain, of course, uh, runs into a couple of continents they haven't actually discovered before. Which, again, this is one of the things that's happening in the 16th century is that this is a culture which really takes the authority of ancient books seriously. And what's going to happen is a lot of these ancient books, their authorities begin to erode under, these under the pressure of these discoveries. Uh, whole continents, whole peoples that people have never heard of before, right? Uh, and of course, the stretching of empires across the, the globe. Uh, that's also a big deal. Which leads to directly one other major um, um, thing that goes on. New economic forces, because of course the Spanish, and less, lesser extent the Portuguese, bring back lots of gold and silver from the New World, which would only be a good thing. However, they bring it back in such quantities, it drives prices up all across Europe. And say, they get acquainted really quickly with what's called inflation, which they did not understand at all, or would not until I think the 18th and 19th century in Europe. So all of a sudden you have all this gold coming in, and then the economic forces, but by the way, people have noted this happening. Uh, they noted prices going up. They noted, by the way, Beggars appearing across the countryside, across Western Europe, as they never appeared in the Middle Ages. All of a sudden, things are going haywire. So, things they can't understand. And all this means an expansion of knowledge, which, again, sort of bursts at the seams of not just, you know, I say Aristotle, he's the authority for so many things, even beyond the natural, natural sciences in our terms. They call it natural philosophy for a reason, right? Um, it begins, again, erode people's confidence. Not totally, these, these books, the Aristotelian texts, they are wonderful, I love Aristotle. Um, they, are, they are used in universities for a long time after this, but there are clamors. There's a clamoring for people to sort of uh, address all these changes. And then finally, most egregiously, there are conflicts, military conflicts, inspired by the Reformation. This starts in the 1540s in Germany, uh, leads to a stalemate. 
there are several, I won't go through all of them, they occur in lots of different places. The worst in the 16th century, of course, in uh, France, uh, civil wars in France, the Protestants, the minority, the Catholic uh, majority, uh, which lead to assassinations, um, massacres galore. It's a really bloody time in France, and nobody seems to know what to do about it. Uh, ends with the conversion of a Protestant prince who becomes the first Bourbon king in 1598. Uh, really devastating for, you know, anything like real religious unity, obviously, in 16th century Europe. But the final death knell of this religious conflict is the Thirty Years' War, which note the dates. This is going on essentially in the time frame in which Galileo is publishing his most controversial works. The Thirty Years' War is a war fought in Germany uh, between princes of the Holy Roman Empire, which is a Germanic uh, elective monarchy, uh, for possession of that, uh, that crown, uh, which will engulf much of the continent and essentially um, basically level large parts of Germany and, and in a stalemate. Nobody's able to win the last real push to resolve the conflicts caused by the Reformation. They couldn't be, called, uh, um, couldn't be solved peacefully. They tried by war or by military means. And even that doesn't work. Uh, and so it leaves a sort of stalemate in place, which exists, obviously, has never gone away, essentially. One of the things to note, by the way, getting to uh, Galileo, <coughs> why um, the church will defend his teaching so, uh, <coughs> so strenuously against Galileo. Um, as I mentioned before, <coughs> excuse me, um, Galileo's texts have been the primary vehicle for teaching natural philosophy in universities for about 400 years, until you get to uh, the end of the 16th century. Um, they've been, like I said, useful, helpful. <clears throat> you know anything about universities, whatever their actual uh, beliefs are, I mean professors and things like that, as institutions they are deeply, deeply, uh, almost violently uh, hidebound and conservative. They don't like change of any sort for any reason. Uh, it usually takes violent change to get them to change anything. So they're opposed to this for the most part in the 16th centuries. But even more important for our purposes, um, some of Aristotle's um, philosophical concepts are actually entwined with Catholic uh, doctrines. Most famously, if you don't know, there's the doctrine of transubstantiation. If you've ever heard this explained to you by a priest or someone like this, the idea that you know, we know by faith that the uh, Eucharistic elements become the body and blood of Christ. But what transubstantiation is was a scholastic attempt in the Middle Ages to explain how this happens. And it uses the language of Aristotle. The substance of the bread and wine uh, uh, change, what, its essence, what it really truly is, the accidents, that's the term they use for things that are not essential, things that occur to your senses, uh, remain the same. And of course, you have people attacking that older philosophy. And so theologians are concerned about that. Because, by the way, you don't. It's not necessarily an official position, transubstantiation. It's just been the most, the clearest and most useful explanation of that, basically. But of course, it's deeply entwined with people's faith. They sort of identify it with the whole notion of the real presence, if you like. Um, the church defends that philosophy because it's bound up in all the other areas of life, political life, religious life. Um, in, in modern term, and I hate the term, by the way, for a variety of reasons, it's defending values, if you like, that um, um, th uh, things that don't really have anything to do with science. Uh, partly because that notion of science that we're going to see Galileo and people beginning to sort of push for doesn't even recognize it as being knowledge anymore. 
Um, so it's defending, if you like, a wider view of what knowledge is, is my point. So you have this situation in which all knowledge seems to be kind of coming into question. Uh, and so by the early 17th century, some thinkers are looking ways out of this. They can particularly do two things. One, obviously to overcome the religious impasse caused by the Reformation. Uh, any way to come overcome the impasse caused by the Reformation. But secondly, they are more particularly international philosophers to incorporate the new knowledge that they gained um, into a different framework for how to understand the world. Uh, since these no, uh, older ideas are no longer held by consensus, including the older natural philosophy of Aristotle. That's where you are in the early 17th century when Galileo gets himself into trouble. Finally, we come to the actual Copernican Revolution. And um, this begins, we'll see in a moment, with Copernicus, but to get to the older world picture as regards to um, the solar system, the universe. Um, this is associated with the, um, with the ancient astronomer Ptolemy, uh, ancient thinker Ptolemy, uh, who wrote in the second century uh, AD. And uh, Ptolemy came up with a uh, view of the cosmos, which he actually took from Aristotle. Aristotle, by the way, didn't do any real measurements with regards to the planets. Ptolemy did. Uh, and he found out, and by the way, Aristotle's um, vision of what the world looked like is more or less like this. Uh, the universe itself, the entire universe, was a series of concentric spheres, with the Earth at the center. And then, by the way, it doesn't show it here, but going up, it's hierarchical. These spheres go up. Um, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, all the way up to the, by the way, the Imperium up here means the highest heaven, essentially. Uh, so it's a hierarchical universe, which, by the way, he does mathematical calculations, and he slightly changes this, by the way. Uh, in Ptolemy's uh, system, um, it's not exactly uh, like Aristotle. Um, they're not perfect spheres, but the mathematical calculations he does basically work from people, what, what people can actually divine about the universe. Uh, in his time period. One of the things to note about this, by the way, this hierarchical universe, is that, um, well, it's partly the terms people talk about this. This is parallel to what people saw, I put, I put this, they saw the, there's a parallel between their view of the universe in its physical dimensions, but also in its, if you like, moral dimensions. Uh, hierarchy was something people valued in society at that time, right? Uh, maybe you're familiar with the whole term, the great chain of being, where there were a hierarchy of beings going from the lowest being all the way up to God. This is what this is kind of paralleling, a very tightly constructed system in which there's a place for everything, defined by you know, its level of excellence, if you like, um, both in the physical universe, but also in moral metaphysical terms. Um, and by the way, the highest, and this is important to note about this, the higher you go up, by the way, the less change there is. Um, space and time act differently according to this uh, theory, uh, whether you're on Earth or in the heavens, because the heavens are supposed to be made of pure materials. Again, the idea is you're getting closer to the highest, which is the best, therefore it's a different way of, uh, time and matter don't act the same way, basically. Um, this is clearly something, again, I mentioned this before, uh, Earth at the center, um, those aren't very helpful when I think about it. I'm gonna change those next time I teach my class. Um, but it parallels a universe which, by the way, notice how, how snug and neat this whole picture is. You can easily conjure an image of what the universe looks like by looking at this picture, right? Keep that in mind. 
What happens, of course, is that this idea reigns for 1,500 years. Um, and, um, and by the way, there were people who, by the way, posited a couple of philosophers in the ancient world that the sun was the center of the universe. They sort of lost out to Aristotle's uh, reputation. But in the 15, early 1500s, you had a, uh, a mathematician and an astronomer, a Polish one, named Nicholas Copernicus, who, um, in 1543, year of his death, published a work called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres, which um, constructed uh, a heliocentric system uh, in which planets moved around the sun in perfect circles. In other words, who's still trying to actually adhere to the whole idea of perfection in the stars and the heavens. But this time with the sun at the center. He thought this would make better sense of his calculations. This is the other thing to note about uh, Copernicus. What makes him unique in some ways, he made very, very accurate calculations about planets and stars and where they were aligned and how they moved. Um, and uh, this book was published in 1543. He dedicated it, by the way, to Pope Paul III. Um, Copernicus was Catholic. There wasn't really any controversy when he published this. He died. It will become controversial uh, at the end of the 16th and in the early 17th centuries for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it's accepted as an interesting hypothesis and nothing more. What's going to happen is it's going to fire. By the way, this is a, a picture of what his universe looks like. Notice it's not much different than the Ptolemaic actually at this point. Um, still in concentric circles, but the one big difference the sun's at the center, and the earth is up here. Um, people take this up, though, however. And in fact, some people aren't necessarily convinced of his thesis, but they want to take some of his calculations because they think they're pretty well done. The most important of these people is Tycho Brahe, who was a Danish astronomer who built his own, in his own private island, isn't that great? He built his own gigantic observatory where he made even better calculations than Copernicus. Uh, and he worked up a, a compromise system in which the, the um, um, excuse me, in which the sun still moves around the Earth, but the rest of the planets in the solar system move around the sun. I'll show you in a minute. It's really weird. I also mention it, by the way, because some people who worked, who understood there were problems with the older Ptolemaic system, but couldn't quite buy the sense that the Earth was moving around the, the Earth was moving around the sun, accepted this, especially actually the Catholic Church. They would actually propound this for a long time as an alternative uh, the Copernicus system. He also had an assistant at Tycho Brahe, a man named Johannes Kepler, uh, who went even further with his research. And most importantly, he will do two things. One, he will come up with a theory of planetary motion, which, again, you saw all those sort of circular orbits. They presumed that these planets moved in circular orbits. He's the one to posit that they actually moved in ellipses. If you know an ellipse is, it's not quite a non-circular orbit. Why is that important? Partly because it gets actually, he made good calculations, as did Brahe, closer to the way planets actually we know today through scientific calculation actually move. Kepler, by the way, like Brahe, was a devout Lutheran. His reasons were actually mostly theological, to be honest with you. Uh, he was kind of a mystic, Kepler was. The other thing he does, by the way, he supports Galileo. We'll come to this in a moment. Um, tries to get Galileo to accept his theory of planetary motion, which Galileo never does. It's actually one of the reasons we'll come back to. Galileo never quite, as we'll see, makes the breakthrough he thinks he probably should have. This, by the way, is the Tychonic system, as you can kind of see. Again, you still have the Earth right here. You have the Sun here, but then you have all the planets spinning around it. Again, kind of weird, right? A uh, nice little compromise there. Which brings us finally to Galileo, the subject of our talk. 
And that's him, pictures from the 1630s there, as an old man. Galileo was a Florentine, uh, and he was trained as a mathematician. He was actually a professor of mathematics at the University of Padua in the 16th century, and of course, an inventor. Uh, Galileo was a prodigious inventor of things, among other, of course, a telescope. He didn't invent the telescope, but he invented one of the first really ones that worked well enough to see things. Um, he challenged, successfully, by the way, Aristotle's theory of motion. So we'll go into these details. Uh, I don't know them that well, by the way. Um, but he had gained reputation for doing this, by the way, in his lifetime. But in the early 17th century, he began to take up Copernicus's theory, and he thought he could prove this through his observations with his telescope. And so what happens is, in the early 17th um, uh, early 1600s, he published a work called The Sidereal Messenger, The Starred Messenger, in which he discovered, by the way, with his telescope, um, the moons around um, Jupiter, something he's never discovered these before. Again, you know, breaking the boundaries of knowledge and all that stuff. However, um, he um, also basically claimed in that work that it proved uh, Copernicus' theory of the heliocentric system was correct. Uh, and this brought him uh, to the attention of, again, by the way, this is complicated. There were other astronomers, who, by the way, also clerics, who didn't like this idea at all, partly for scriptural reasons, partly because they thought it was absurd. And if you're wondering, well, come back to this, why I thought it was absurd, there are reasons for it. Um, and his works were alerted to the Roman Inquisition. He was called before in 1616. Um, and while he's there, he is basically questioned about it. Um, but again, then again, he is let go with a warning, essentially. Um, he is warned not to teach the Copernican theory. I have an asterisk there, by the way. The asterisk is there is still some debate about this because um, Galileo will later claim he was told not to teach it and hold it as if it were true. He could still teach it as, a, as an hypothesis. He actually produced a document on this effect the second time he goes before the Inquisition. The Inquisition never buys it. Um, that's important to note because here he's basically more or less giving his word to the Inquisition. And you have to remember that the Inquisition is a legal body. You were here for my lecture on it. Um, it's giving the law court <laughs> a promise that's kind of a serious thing. And in fact, the man who, uh, who questioned him at the, uh, the first meeting with the Inquisition was his friend, this man, Sir Bellamy, who's a saint. I don't know who he is. Uh, Bellamy uh, wrote a very public letter had published to a Father Foscarini in 1615. Um, in which he talked about Galileo's theories. Foscarini uh, is one of uh, Galileo's supporters. And he um, basically said that he thought the work was very well done as a hypothesis. But, I'll actually read you a, a little quotation from it here, but that it was certainly not true. We, we, I'll read the actual introduction, the, the part of the letter here. It's very interesting. Um, quote unquote. He says it can be taught hypothetically, but it can't be taught as if it was true until it's proven so. Let me read a letter to Father uh, Foscarini here. Uh, I say that if there were a true demonstration that the sun is at the center of the world, and the earth in the third heaven, and that the sun does not circle the earth, but the earth circles the sun, then one would have to proceed with great care in explaining the scriptures that appear the contrary. This is the main concern, right? There are passages in the Old Testament where, you know, Exodus, Moses lifts his hand during the battle, the earth, the sun stands still, all that sort of stuff. Um, and say, rather, that we do not understand them, then what is demonstrated is false. But I will not believe that there is such a demonstration until it is shown me. Um, and he says this several times. Galileo hasn't proven his point to his satisfaction. 
And he's wondering like the reason why he doesn't believe this. Uh, this is a little, this is by the way the reason most people don't at the time. Uh, he says that when someone moves away from the shore, although it appears to him like the shore is moving away from him, nevertheless he knows this is an error and corrects it, seeing clearly that the ship, the ship moves and not the shore. But in regard to the sun and the earth, no scientist has any need to correct the error, since he clearly experiences that the earth stands still, and that the eye is not an error when it judges that the sun moves, as it is also not an error when it judges the moon and the stars move. Um, he's saying basically that what Galileo, that heliocentric theory, doesn't match, match up with our empirical observations of nature. You go outside, it looks like the sun's moving around the earth. This is the big thing that most people have against the theory. What happens? Uh, Galileo lays low. 1623, we'll get to this in a moment, he gets a license, he gets basically official authority from the Pope to write a book comparing the heliocentric and the geocentric systems. It takes him nearly 10 years to write. It's published in 1632 as a dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. And indeed, he does compare the two. Uh, it purports to discuss hy uh, both hypothetically, but it is clearly advocating for the Copernican theory. Now, uh, this is going to bring to the attention of the Inquisition for a second time. I'll explain why, though. The reason he wrote the book in the first place is because his friend, Maffeo Barberini, who in 1623 becomes Pope Urban VIII, uh, gave him permission. Uh, Long-time friend, actually. Again, if you're getting the sense of this, I didn't go into his background too much. Galileo is very hooked up. He knows people, dukes, cardinals. He knows how to play, if you like, the game of being a courtier very well. The Pope is one of his patrons. Um, in the 16th century, 17th century, you can't do science in universities. You need patrons willing to sort of, you know, give you carte blanche to do things. That's what's happening here with uh, the Pope of the Pope, Urban VIII. And as it turns out, Barbarini, and by the way, he's an interesting figure in his own right, uh, was sort of an amateur natural philosopher. He wrote a work defending the Ptolemaic system. In the dial chief dialogue concerning the two world systems, he has a, a dialogue between three men. Um, uh, there's a couple of people arguing, basically. One's supposed to be uh, neutral, he's not. Two in favor of the heliocentric system, the Copernican system. Another interlocutor defending the geocentric system. The interlocutor defend, uh, defending the geocentric system in that book is named Simplicius. And if you don't know what that means in Latin, it means fool or idiot. In the work, Galileo actually puts words from the Pope's book defending the geocentric system into the mouth of Simplicius. This was a bad move. This is one of the things that makes uh, them all of a sudden remember, oh wait, he had given his word not to teach um, the uh, theory as if it were true in 1632, called the Inquisition. His ideas are, his works are examined thoroughly, he goes before them and tries to, um, they revisit the 1616 decision, he produces a document signed by Robert Bellamy that, you know, say he could discuss it hypothetically and he wasn't really doing this uh, in the, uh, uh, the work that we're looking at. Uh, they don't buy his, his uh, reasoning. And then 1633, they condemn his teaching, they forced him to recant it. Uh, and they will put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. He spends, it's not very, by the way, it's house arrest. He can't leave. It's a pretty nice villa he lives at. It's a villa owned by one of his friends who's a cardinal. Um, but they force him to sort of pull back on this. Uh, and that is what is at stake, and uh, that's what happens in Galileo Affair. 
And just to clear something up, I'll come back to this, this more in a second, what happened and why. If you're wondering, by the way, how the, the Copernican system gets proved correct, it's because of this man. He is, that is Sir Isaac Newton, uh, the Englishman, who in 1687 publishes a work called the Principia Mathematica, which is a gigantic, turgid, completely unreadable book, mostly of mathematical equations, which in which he will finally fuse together all the ideas of, um, of Copernicus, of Kepler, and then Galileo. Um, and he will prove, by the way, the uh, Copernican system to be true because one of the things Galileo couldn't, couldn't prove, uh, he couldn't account for um, basically why, um, why, for example, uh, planets move the way they do. Um, that why they all moved the same way, why space and matter act in the same way universally throughout the solar system. Um, Newton did this, by the way, by utilizing Kepler's theories of uh, a planetary motion and basically applying it to everything. The reason why, by the way, um, just if you're wondering why uh, Galileo couldn't do this, uh, he didn't like Kepler's theories because they, they seemed, I'll come back to the moment, they, he couldn't account for gravity was a real problem. That's where, that's where Newton comes in. But the reason why was um, Galileo didn't like the idea that um, his theory of motion was that objects themselves were the cause of all their motion. Gravity, of course, is about forces acting almost between them. And he didn't like that idea for a variety of reasons. I'll come back to that if you want to learn more about that. Um, but it's Newton who basically brings this to a, a close at the end of the century, well after this happens, 40 years after this happens. So I have said at the beginning, that the uh, Inquisition was right to condemn Galileo. Why were they right? Because they condemned him, and I'll read some of this, by the way, the actual condemnation, for teaching the theory as it had been proved true. And here's the thing, and this is something most historians of science, you press them, they don't like saying nice things about the Catholic Church. They were correct. Uh, but I'll read this in a second. Um, this, is the, this is the initial um, sentence they hand down in 1633. Um, the, uh, yeah, this is what they basically come, this is the two things they say. Uh, well, one of the two things they say. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, trying to find the best. Yes. Um, well, the official, by the way, the official um, condemnation says they um, rendered him uh, what they call suspected of heresy, suspicion of heresy, which is technical, it's a technical legal term they have. Uh, but of having held and believed a doctrine which is false and contrary to the divine and holy scripture that the sun is the center of the world, does not move from east to west, etc., etc. Um, and basically, they, they hold him for teaching something that is true that they thought was false. And by the way, when I say, why hadn't he proved it? Why, why? And by the way, he says over and over again, he has. Um, one of the reasons why, there are two reasons why. One, um, most of the scientific community did not accept his theory. Um, the Pope had his own scientists at his court. They were divided on this question. I mentioned uh, one of the propagandists for the new, the new science was for Francis Bacon. He was a geocentrist all his life. He never accepted Copernicus' theory. Um, one of the sort of definitions, of course, of you know, scientific endeavor is that you do have to kind of like get everybody to accept your, uh, your theories. They didn't in his lifetime. Again, not until long after his lifetime. And secondly, many of Galileo's reasons for supporting Copernicus turned out to be false. The most famous of these, by the way, um, is his theory of the tides. He thought these could be explained by the motion of the Earth itself. Again, he, was, he, he didn't like the idea of, um, 
uh, Kepler was actually closer to Mars. The moon's gravitational pull is what helps cause it. But uh, he didn't like that theory. He didn't like the idea of forces uh, outside bodies themselves to come to him. He called them occult forces. I mention this because he was keen to describe the reason why is he's keen to describe the world in terms of regular natural laws that operate mathematically. And gravity, that theory of gravity stunned the people in the 18th century, even people who, after uh, Newton's uh, works are published, it sounded a little bit like, they use the term occult forces, because that's kind of what it sounds like. It sounds like voodoo or something, as opposed to natural laws which are laid down by God, and which are orderly and regular and all that stuff. Um, in fact, uh, uh, again, this is one of the, and by the way, Galileo being wrong as to this sort of thing, nobody was quite aware of these forces at this point. And again, this comes back to one of the things to note about um, the 17th century. One of the reasons what's so interesting about this is that these forces, these basic forces like gravity, people weren't aware of them because in the you know before the 17th century because they didn't know how big the world was. It had only become clear there are gravitational forces. Gravitational forces working on us right now, actually, uh, in me and this cup. But it takes things on a massive scale for you to even understand that, and you only understand that how mathematically not with your senses. Um, it's an odd thing about modern science is it's supposed to begin with observations, the senses, it goes way beyond that, reveals that our senses are kind of limited, right, for understanding the world. It's true, by the way, the church was mostly, as I read in that passage, they're mostly concerned with defending uh, scripture, in particular, literal historical interpretations of scripture. There's nothing wrong with this, by the way, uh, in my view. Um, does everything in uh, the Old Testament have to be interpreted liberally? No. But it's the easiest way to teach what the scripture teaches, obviously, and the simplest. Especially people, by the way, who aren't educated. And again, remember in the 17th century, most people are not educated. Uh, and that's one thing that is on people's minds, obviously. I'll say this as well, the church has a duty to defend its faith, the faith of its flock. Um, Galileo's uh, ideas, if you like, uh, you could say he spread them in a way irresponsibly. Uh, he rushed to judgment in some ways, uh, trying to get ahead of the scientific consensus the way he did. Uh, but also, of course, the church is defending, of course, something that's beyond the scope of what, uh, what Galileo wants to talk about. Because again, he wants to reduce the world, the natural world, to mathematics. And this is, by the way, sometimes taken as a criticism of and you can, and this is what John Paul II says, by the way, in his little allocution about Galileo, is that, well, these theologians shouldn't have overstepped their bounds, right? Well, they're, they're bringing, you know, scripture into, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with theology. I would actually reverse that. I would say Galileo is actually intruding a very narrow range of expertise into a situation in which these values are kind of, they're being threatened. Um, mores that are much more important, directly important, obviously, to a working in a society are being threatened in the 17th century. And one of the other things about this, I, don't, I haven't really mentioned this at all, this is those part not about science versus faith. If you don't know, Galileo was a perfectly devout Catholic. He submitted willingly to the Inquisition's, uh, Inquisition's sentence in 1633. It's not about that at all, actually, uh, in any way, shape, or form. And again, put another way, I'll reiterate this, before this, the Pope had been his patron, had written, by the way, a Latin poem to him in praise of his earlier discoveries. This was not necessarily uh, an institution opposed to science. This is a problem of knowledge in the 17th century. Uh, and you could see there's a clash of different types of expertise. 
if you want to see it in those terms, is a philosopher, Paul Feyerabend, uh, who put it in these terms, that Robert Bellamy, for example, being so concerned to defend the possible moral, um, the possible moral um, uh, consequences of publishing this theory, was actually being more scientific than Galileo with his rush to judgment. You could see it that way. Uh, by the way, types of expertise between the narrow one, focused on mathematics, eh, and the ones focused on a little wider set of uh, values, if you like those terms, and I don't obviously. So we'll come back to, after all that, uh, that's a lot to dump on you, uh, the charges. The church persecuted Galileo for spreading knowledge. Um, two, the church puts blind faith ahead of science. Uh, three, it is opposed to social scientific progress. And then four, it was merely concerned with its own power. I would respond in these ways, basically. Firstly, um, False claims to knowledge can undermine the real thing. In this age of fake news, that should be something everybody can kind of get behind. Uh, and the church was concerned about that. Again, they were more concerned about scripture than that, but they were concerned people were rushing to judgment. Which again, given the events of the last couple of years, you should be, uh, I think, concerned about too. Um, secondly, uh, the church being attached to blind faith, the church has always taught that faith and reason go together. That's clear. I know, that's ultimately, by the way, doesn't mean they don't, might not conflict sometimes, and they might be in tension. However, uh, both of these things deserve scrutiny. I have no problem with any atheist uh, wanting to probe them with beliefs. I have reasons for him. Um, but to say, that, of course, that Galileo is a hero who you can't criticize or something like this is going to bridge too far. They both deserve uh, scrutiny. Um, and neither one should be off limits in that regard, I don't think. Thirdly, and this is more the historical point I want to make, the church had valid concerns about the social stability of social morality or values at the time. As we do today, if someone says, if you say that, well, if you mention this historical background about, oh, Galileo rushed to judgment, all this stuff, and they say, well, you're just making that up, you can give them a nice example. An example I give my students when I teach Galileo is this. Um, if you don't know, there's a, there's a sort of replication crisis going on in the social sciences today among sociologists that has said they have a problem replicating any of their experiments, which is a big problem. That's how you basically prove your theories have universal validity and how it's true. The one area of research that has not been touched by this, by the way, is intelligence research. Do you know what I'm referring to? IQ tests. Do you know why that might be controversial in moral terms? Because they routinely reveal two things. One, there are differences seemingly very, very set in, perhaps genetic differences between people in terms of their intelligence uh, as individuals, but also between races. Um, the breakdown of these sorts of studies always go like this. Asians at the top, white European second, uh, Hispanic people third, people of African descent fourth. So there's your data, you wanna go run with that and tell everybody that that's what the, what the truth is right away? Uh, and of course my students are aghast when I suggest this for a reason. This goes back to my point about modern science being a very narrow view of the world. And that you might actually have wider claims that might actually take precedence over it. It's not unthinkable. Uh, and I object to people going back into the past and accusing dead people who can't defend themselves of being the most horrible people, uh, horrible people of all time when we do the exact, and by the way, if you had mentioned anything like I just mentioned in a university, I wouldn't mention that in a university setting at all. <laughs> I don't think I can get away with it. Seriously, they will. You just mentioned the study's findings. It'll make some people. It will. It will get you in trouble. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then finally, 
Uh, you should be honest, power is a part of every major conflict of this nature. And it's, by the way, I've been kind of, I have been meaning to defend the church in this talk. Um, I have no problem with condemning his teaching. They probably should not have put him under house arrest. <laughs> I mean, it was a little bit of an overkill. Um, the fact that the Pope seemingly, you know, act, reacted to Galileo, and Galileo, I'll be honest, was an arrogant guy, so he kind of brought this on himself. Um, be honest, yeah, some power is always a part of this, right? Um, you can't avoid that in human life, you just can't. Uh, but to say that's the only thing is just nobody actually acts like that. Sorry, doesn't work that way, at least in my experience. So, that's it. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you from the, uh, the dumb medieval scientists. And that is all. Uh, I, you don't have to talk to them. Any questions before we you know, talk for a while? Know, did I go over time again or no? Yeah, about an hour. About an hour. I did, I did okay. So, what? Uh, any questions, gentlemen, at all? Or did that blow your mind so much that you have nothing? nothing to do? You don't have to, by the way. I just want to make sure you have time to ask and everything. Wait, wait, wait until you guys have that. I give you yeah. Michael. Yeah. I guess would you see kind of the sentence that if the car sentence that Galileo received more of a carter, I guess not carter, say broken out. No, that they did actually say that uh, in the. Uh, they actually basically they didn't say it in so many words. They thought he was lying. Um, they did that. They actually got him for that, and I think he. I don't know if he was lying outright, but he was playing fast and loose. Yes. Uh, no, I. I, I that's one of the things I don't actually. I used to be very, if anybody wants to talk to me about what I've talked to him about, I don't feel that sorry for him. Uh, he was a really sharp guy. Yeah. More than that, he was, I was hoping, maybe you haven't seen, anybody familiar with Warner Brothers cartoons, the Looney Tunes, remember Wiley Coyote is? Wiley Coyote, maybe you don't. Mm -hmm. Wiley Coyote was this character who's always trying to catch this roadrunner. And there was this cartoon in which he's like, the, the, the roadrunner, the bird likes carrots. So he gets these metal carrots and fills them with nitroglycerin. He's, in this episode, he's filling up these nitroglycerin things and says, mm, Wiley Coyote, you're a super genius. Well, Galileo was a super genius. He was super brilliant. Um, but he was very intense. He used to have very, very... Um, yeah, he was someone who really knew his way around, like I said, a court. He knew how to... You know, if you read his writings, he's a brilliant writer, by the way. Brilliant. Um, he just kind of... I think he got caught. And he just got caught getting a little bit too big for his... He thought he'd get away with like mocking the Pope a little bit because he was his friend. It just came back to bite him. He should have known better. Uh, and again, this is a, actually I'll, I'll, I'll speak to this because I I'm not and I don't I don't consider historians to have like real experts. I mean, it's not anybody to be a historian in my view. Most people like history, so it's okay. Uh, but um, if you do have like specialized knowledge, for you to abuse that, I, I think that's very. I, it makes me angry actually. If you have a specialized knowledge, if you're uh, you know if you're using science, right? To propagate atheist views, I think you're, I, I, I find that offensive. Not because I, I don't know. I actually, am, I know I have atheist friends. I I think you're abusing knowledge, which is so hard to come by. It takes such effort, uh, and to use it for purposes for which it was not intended. And can't, by the way, there's no way any aspect of science can prove anything like that. It cannot cannot solve those questions. It can tell you how to live. Can do. I, I, I love modern science. By the way, I'm great with it. I like my iPad that's recording this. I like my computer, I like all that stuff, but it is not a path to the sort of knowledge people make it into. And I put it this way, I have much more, it sounds bad, I have much less problem with what the Inquisition did to Galileo than with the idea that science is the oracle for all of our life's problems. It isn't. So, 
have to be talking too much. You guys look tired. I'll let you guys, we'll, we'll conclude this. Thank you guys for coming. Hopefully it was useful. Uh, maybe a little too much, but it was hopefully it was useful for you. Uh, you guys can sign off. Thank you very much, by the way. <laughs>